You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, yeah, we've, we've got a great guest here today. I was very honored that when the second edition of his book came out, but I heard specifically, yeah, he wants to come on and do your show again. It was such an honor because this guy is one of the best. But before I talk about him, let's talk about... Well, even before that, I'd like to say that tonight I am going to be at an event with my father-in-law where he's speaking on resurrection. Unfortunately, this was booked in advance, so I'm going to miss my brother-in-law's graduating from Fire Academy to be a firefighter. So right here, I just say, congratulations, Zach. I, I wish I could be there, but I'm proud of you. I, I hope you do a great job as a firefighter. And now let's talk about the subject that we're going to be talking about. Many times in our discussions about his resurrection, we talk about the Gospels. Can we really trust them? And these are just a bunch of anonymous books, aren't they? And they're written decades after the event. They don't even claim to be by eyewitnesses. And heck, even if they were by eyewitnesses, can we really trust eyewitness testimony? Well, one of the best books out there on this is the book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And just recently... We had the 10th anniversary edition of it come out. In fact, it uh, came out just this year, maybe a little bit past 10 years, but close enough. And the author of that book is Dr. Richard Bauckham, and he has returned to the Deeper Waters podcast to join me today. He's a biblical scholar and theologian. His academic work and publications have ranged over many areas of these subjects, including theology of Jürgen Moltmann, Christology, both New Testament and systematic, eschatology, the New Testament books of Revelation, James, 2 Peter, and Jude, Jewish and Christian apocalyptic literature, the Old Testament pseudepigrapha, the New Testament apocrypha, the relatives of Jesus, the early Jerusalem church, the Bible and contemporary issues, and biblical and theological approaches to environmental issues. In recent years, much of, my work, much of his work has focused on Jesus and the Gospels. Probably his best-known books are Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the Gospels of Eyewitness Testimony, God Crucified, Monotheism and Christology in the New Testament, the Theology of the Book of Revelation, and Bible and Eschatology. As well as technical scholarship and writing aimed at students and those with some theological background, he's also written accessible books for a wider readership, of which best known is At the Cross, Meditations on People Who Were There, which he wrote with Trevor Hart. A recent book is Jesus, A Very Short Introduction, published in Oxford University Press's Very Short Introduction series and providing a historical account of Jesus for the general reader. Various of his books have appeared in translation in Italian, Japanese, Chinese, Russian, Korean, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and Farsi. Until 2007, he was a professor of New Testament studies at the University of St. Andrews, Scotland. He retired early in order to concentrate on research and writing and moved to Cambridge. You can also read some of his poetry and two storybooks written for children, 
Oh, adults are also enjoy them. About the McBells of Bearlock. Dr. Balkum, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you very much. It's it's such an honor that you want to be on here again. I, I hope you have just as good a time this time as you did last time. Yes, I'm sure I will. Yes. Well, if my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Oh, well, um, my academic life really started as a historian. Um, and I moved over into theology and New Testament really as my interests drew me. Um, so I was educated in Cambridge as a historian. I had a very good historical training, which I always think has stood me in good stead as a biblical scholar, mm-hmm. um, perhaps especially in the uh, book on the eyewitnesses. Um, and then I had an a few academic posts in the UK. I was 15 years in Manchester in the northwest of England, where I taught historical and contemporary theology. And then I moved to St Andrews in Scotland, where I was professor of New Testament for 15 years, until 10 years ago when I retired. I retired in the sense that I retired from my employment, but in order to concentrate on, on research and writing, which I've been doing for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Now, this book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, what was the motivation in writing it, at least the first time? Well, um, it grew out of some ideas I had about the way that I think the Gospels indicate their eyewitness sources. And uh, this was was not something that had been generally talked about. Um, So I thought, and I had had some ideas about the notion of testimony as well, and what it would mean to uh, to say that the Gospels are based on eyewitness testimony. So I had um, what I thought was some fairly original and uh, perhaps interesting thoughts in that direction, um, in the direction, therefore, of confirming the sources of the Gospels as being eyewitness testimony. Um, it seems to me a, a very important mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Um, for historical study of the New Testament and indeed for Christian faith. So I began with these ideas and actually they grew into a much bigger book than I expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, of, I often say I could only have written that book at that stage of my career because I had, I suppose I had the confidence to challenge the dominant model in gospel scholarship and also really importantly, I think a lot of different things I'd done over the course of my uh, academic career came together um, and sort of fed into the book. So what would you say this dominant model about your challenging is? It's the the movement known as form criticism, Mm. which originated at the beginning of the last century, a group of very prominent New Testament scholars, Rudolf Borkman is the best known, Um, and they propounded a view of the Gospels which goes something like this. The Gospels are folk literature. Um, They compared uh, European folk literature. Um, Sort of literature doesn't really have authors. It it, it comes out of the um, traditions of a a community or nation or people. And the foreign critics postulated, therefore, that whereas no doubt the eyewitnesses, the people who had actually known Jesus, uh, sort of started off the Jesus traditions by telling their stories and reporting the sayings of Jesus. The traditions about Jesus then passed down in the oral uh, life of the early communities 
as it were, owned by the communities. They were community traditions, anonymous community traditions, not attributed to any particular uh, sources or eyewitnesses, but owned by the community and passed down in a way that, depending on which scholars you took notice of in that movement, they might be fairly conservative in their preservation of the traditions, but they might also be very creative. Because according to the form critics, the um, early Christians were not interested in history, really. They, they were interested in their present yeah. uh, experience, uh, their relationship to Jesus as the living Lord, but they could treat very freely uh, traditions about the historical Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the argument was that the Gospels, Gospel writers uh, were dependent on those community traditions and basically incorporated them into their writings. Since there are people of all different levels in biblical studies, listeners program, uh, I would like to get one thing clarified. When we talk about a certain kind of criticism in the New Testament, be it form criticism or textual criticism or redaction criticism, we don't mean anything inherently negative by that, do we? It, it's simply a simply a term for this particular way of studying the texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, textual criticism, you know, is is attending to the manuscripts and trying to um, establish the earliest form of the text. But it, it's a way of it's a it, criticism means a, a way of uh, studying the text. Where well, since you've talked about form criticism, also I think it'd be worthwhile to even go back to point about at the very end of your book, you've proclaim the end of form criticism. This is a rather strong claim to make. Uh, Do you really think form criticism has reached its end and we need to just abandon it? I I really do. And actually, in in the first edition of the book, uh, I wrote about this, and as you say, the last chapter in the new edition, which is one of the additional chapters, um, I explained the point more fully and I think, with, with, with uh, as it were, greater finality. Mm. But basically what I did in the, in the book, in the first edition, was to take up many of the criticisms that have already been made by other scholars of form criticism and to show that really they, they leave form criticism. They leave very little validity in form criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the second edition, which we're talking about today, um, of course, includes my responses to discussion of the first edition. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was very interesting that none of the specific aspects of form criticism that I had leveled the criticism at was really being defended by my critics. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me actually that most people have substantially abandoned form criticism, but they do want to kind of hang on to it in a certain sort of way. I mean, people are very reluctant to accept that, you know, that there was really nothing valid in it at all. Mm. And so what some people say is, you know, the great thing form criticism did, and this is why it's called form criticism, was it identified the different forms of, of, of literature of which the Gospels are composed. In other words, things like miracle stories, controversy stories, um, pronouncement stories, which are those stories that lead up to a saying of Jesus at the end of the story, Mm -hmm. uh, and and so on. Um, 
But my response to that is we don't really need the form critics simply to identify those forms for us. That wasn't mm-hmm. the essence of form criticism. Yeah. The essence of form criticism was that having identified those forms, you could then trace the traditions and uh, you, you know excavate the oral tradition behind the New Testament text by means of their view of how those forms of literature were transmitted. Um, so it doesn't seem to me that if you reduce the contribution to of form criticism simply to identifying these specific uh, forms of the gospel tradition, miracle stories or parables or whatever, I mean, that's really not what the form critics were yeah. were known for. Yeah. It, it seems like it would be somewhat more simplistic to me to say, because of a form criticism, now we know the story of a good Samaritan is a parable, and we did not <laughs> yes. know that before. Yes, yes. Yes. I mean, what the form critics did with that, you see, was to say that these various forms originally existed in, in, in a pure form, and many of them only appear in our Gospels in what, by comparison, uh, seems like a, um, a distorted form or mm. a reduced form or something like that. So the idea was that the form critics identified laws of tradition by which traditions as it were, uh, change and develop mm-hmm. over the course of their use in the early communities. But this, is, this has not stood up to modern study of oral tradition, of which there is a great deal more nowadays. You know, people mm-hmm. have studied how oral tradition works in many societies in the world. The form critics were mainly dependent on study of European folk tales, mm-hmm. um, which are not necessarily the best comparison and which, of course, were passed down over many centuries. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a basic flaw in their argument. They were comparing what happened within, what, three decades Mm -hmm. um, between Jesus and the writing of the Gospel of Mark. They were comparing that to what happened over many centuries Mm -hmm. in European folklore. But, But even the way they thought that oral tradition changes and develops is not borne out by modern study of oral tradition. And so would they often think like there was a situation going on in the early church and then they'd, someone would have us take a story about Jesus and adapt it to fit that situation and that story it would fit in the Gospels. And so if we look at this story in the Gospels, we can try and figure out what was going on in the early church. Well, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see, that has not survived in the sense that it has proved very difficult to take one of these particular forms. The idea was that say a miracle story, right. that the miracle story form fitted a particular need and context in the early church uh, and was, as it were, formulated to, to fit that need. But if you think about a miracle story, it could have been used in a variety of ways in teaching. You know, a story of Jesus healing someone. Well, it could be used to say something about Jesus, Christological uh, point, which is perhaps... Uh, the most obvious significance that they have, shall we say, in Mark's gospel. Mark Mark is overwhelmingly concerned to show us who Jesus is. And he tells these stories because they tell you something about Jesus' power and authority and so on. Or you might suppose that a miracle story was there for the sake of encouraging Christians to seek healing from God. So it might accompany 
healing ministry in the early church. Mm-hmm. Or in a more general sort of way, perhaps you could use a healing story to help people to know that they should turn to Jesus in difficult circumstances. I mean, you you, you know all this from sermons. Mm-hmm. People actually preach on miracle stories and they make a wide range of different, uh, as it were, teaching points from them. And there's no way of telling that in the early church, just one of these ways of using a miracle story to teach was the way it was used. Um, Mm -hmm. The evidence suggests that it would have been used in probably as wide a variety of of ways as modern preachers do. So that kind of link between the way a story is formulated in the Gospels and the kind of situation in the early church that it was supposed to have been formed to fit really no longer holds. Yeah, I know it's been talking about the reasons a miracle story could be it seemed like the one that most of us would think of right off was left out entirely, and that's the story actually happened. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, I don't think that's sufficient, because lots and lots of things must have happened yeah. in Jesus' ministry and Jesus' life, mm. which are not in the Gospels. Yeah. Um, we, we do have, a, obviously, a selection of material, mm-hmm. but um, it's material that was preserved it was valuable for, for Christian faith and for knowing Jesus mm. and so forth. Um, and I'm not denying that the stories were put to use, but oh, and I'm certainly not denying, I mean, if you if you look at John's Gospel, for example, it, it's very clear that the key thing John sees in the miracles, which he calls signs, um, is that they're, they're, they're aids to coming to faith in Christ or deepening our faith or something like that. But... The question is, were they formed for that purpose or were they preserved in Christian tradition and then drawn upon by Christian teachers and preachers the the way they are nowadays? Um, And I think that if they were formed to fit a particular purpose, then we would have to identify And the form critics tried to do this. You know, they tried to identify the specific situation to which each of these different forms was adapted. But I think the attempt to do that has simply failed. And as I said before, uh, you know, the the traditions were put... Once they were written, of course, they continued to be used in teaching and preaching. Um, And it didn't affect the form in which the stories were written. And I think the same situation was basically happening before they were written. They mm-hmm. were used in teaching and preaching, but these uses didn't sort of shape the whole telling of the gospel accounts of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think part of this was also changed when uh, Richard, uh, Richard Burridge came out with his uh, work on the gospels as, um, as Greco-Roman biographies. And because yes, of that, we had we had long written the Gospels with the community in mind instead of with the actual writer in mind. Yeah, yes, I think I think that that's true. I mean, well, one thing is that since the form critics, most scholars have come to see the Gospel writers as real authors. They're not mm-hmm. just, as it were, writing down what they heard. Um, said in the early communities. They're not just recording community tradition. They're real authors. Mm -hmm. And Richard Burridge showed, and a very wide range of of, of scholars now agree with this, that the Gospels would have been seen as biographies. In other words, 
they would have been put into the category. If people say, what sort of literature is this? They would have been put into the category of, of, of Greco-Roman uh, lives of famous people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the key thing here is that genre is something, literary genre, the kind of literature we're reading, is actually very important. Um, you know, we read things differently. If you think something is a novel or a history book or a collection of short stories or travel writing or so, you know, you read these things differently. And we don't have to think very hard about that. We're so used to these genres, we automatically put literature into these genres and it determines how we read them. Um, but if you think what would ancient readers or hearers of the Gospels, what sort of literature would they think this is like? The, the, the fairly broad category of ancient biography is the obvious answer. But then you have to ask, what would they have expected of an ancient biography? Um, what what would they have expected of the life of a person recorded within living memory of that person? And, and that's important because some biographies were people who lived, you know, centuries ago and they tend to be very legendary. Mm-hmm. But uh, of a contemporary person, people would have expected a life to be based on eyewitness testimony. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the general approach of historians in the ancient world. Eyewitness testimony is the key thing. If you don't have eyewitness testimony, you really can't write history. Yeah. And something that a lot of people would be surprised by is because a lot of our skeptical friends would say, we can't trust the Gospels because they were biased. And yet you have a quote here, or rather a statement about what Burskog said, how that this passionate observer was not someone you wanted writing a story. You wanted someone who was involved in the events. That was an ideal witness. In other words, bias would be seen as a good thing to them. Yes, bias in the sense of involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more significant the event and the more involved the eyewitness was, the more, of course, they would be affected by the event. Mm-hmm. So your best eyewitnesses for important things in history would be people who were affected by the event and would want to tell the story, um, not just out of um, you know mere curiosity or something like that. They would want to tell the story because they found it significant mm-hmm. and they would want to convey the significance of that event. Um, but it, in itself, there's nothing different about the Gospels in that respect from a, a great deal of history. You know, mm-hmm. um, we rely on people who were involved in the events who tell the story of the events because they think they're important and they could uh, many many ancient biographies were written because the biographer thought that the person whose life he was writing was a great example that people could follow mm-hmm. or perhaps he was a philosopher with a message that people should attend to so people always wrote history with a sense of the importance and significance mm-hmm. of what they were writing and if that went back to someone who was in a position to experience that significance because they were involved, all the better. Yeah. It always strikes me as bizarre to think that people want someone to write who didn't have any interest. Because, I mean, I sit down and I write a blog five days a week. I'm not going to write about a topic I have no interest in. Why would I even bother? As soon as you write about something, you automatically have some interest in it, or else you're not going to be writing it. Absolutely. Yes. People, of course, people, of course, might say we only have the Gospels from one kind of involved perspective. Um, but 
One very interesting thing about the Gospels, actually, uh, if you read them carefully, you'll find that the Gospels record other people's views of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he has a demon, yeah. uh, or he's, he's mad. Or, he's a Samaritan. Uh, he's a Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Or when it comes to the resurrection, the disciples stole the body, mm-hmm. you know. So although the Gospel writers are writing, obviously, from their own involved perspective, mm-hmm. they're well aware of the fact that Jesus was a controversial figure, and they're taking that into account, and they're, mm-hmm. as it were, taking us into the debate about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So if you read Mark's Gospel, you know, you come across, um, and Mark structures his narrative so that, you you know, you gradually reach a conviction of your own as to who Jesus is. But you do so through these controversy stories, through uh, reports of what people said and and what happened and, and the disciple you know the disciples themselves are often misunderstanding mm-hmm. things um, but it kind of takes you through that debate and and leads you to the conclusion you reach at the end mm-hmm. now one of the figures you mentioned early on in this book is a man named Papias now some people out there who who aren't as familiar with biblical studies could be saying I don't remember reading about Papias in my Bible. Who is Papias? <laughs> yes, he wrote just a little bit too late to get into the New Testament, mm-hmm. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but Papias was, uh, he was actually Bishop of Hierapolis, a place in modern Turkey, um, at the beginning of the second century. Um, and he actually wrote a book which was something like a gospel. Um, in other words, he himself collected traditions about Jesus and sayings of Jesus and uh, compiled them into a book which, which sadly, sadly has survived only in a few fragments. We have mm. s- simply some quotations in later writers. It'd be wonderful if someone discovered Papias' book in the sands of Egypt. I, uh, whenever I think about it, I hope it's going to happen. But one of the things he did, well, two things he did are important. One of the things he did was to talk about how he himself did his collecting of Jesus' traditions. And he must have been doing it around the 80s of the first century. And he says that what he wanted were traditions from named disciples, Thomas or Peter or a couple of still surviving disciples who were living not too far from where Papias lived. Um, but the key thing is he, he, he expected traditions about Jesus to originate, and he really only want, he wanted traditions at uh, first-hand, second-hand third hand at most, really. Um, He expected his traditions to come from disciples of the eyewitnesses um, and maybe a messenger um, filling the the, the gap between himself and the disciple. But you see a very very, um, short chain of witness back to a named eyewitness. So I think it's very important at the time when perhaps some Gospels were being written. Most scholars would put Matthew and Luke uh, around that time that Papias is talking about. Um, Papias is good evidence of the way people understood Gospel traditions. They didn't see them as community traditions. Papias is not interested in community tradition. He wants traditions that come from named eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the other thing about Papias is that he's the first writer we have outside the Gospels themselves that tells us something about the Gospels and, and how the Gospels originated. Mm-hmm. And Papias has a famous uh, quotation. We have a quotation from Papias 
about the origins of the Gospel of Mark, um, which um, he, he said that Mark, who was a, an interpreter of Peter, um, heard Peter's own um, reporting of the traditions, Peter's own version of the story of Jesus and the stories he told about Jesus. And uh, Mark's Gospel was based on Peter's eyewitness testimony. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a very key piece of evidence about the Gospels, um, about the origins of the Gospels. And um, uh, the form critics, of course, discredited Papias on that point because their understanding of how the Gospels came about is quite different to, to what Papias there assumes. Um, so what I did in the book was to say, okay, this is what Papias said. It's not necessarily reliable because it's later than the Gospels. But does it actually fit what the Gospel of Mark is, is like? And one of the things you can easily do with the Gospel of Mark is actually look at the enormous prominence of the figure of Peter mm-hmm. uh, in the Gospel. So that if someone were asking themselves, you know, this is a, a, a biography, it ought to be based on eyewitness testimony. Who's the, who are the major eyewitnesses? Peter would have been an obvious example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that there are ways in which the Gospel of Mark itself corroborates um, Papias' testimony about it. I think the, the, the two things, as it were, fit together very well. There are some people who have criticisms of Papias' foe based on historical reasons. Two of them come to mind. First off, Eusebius, the church father who wrote the first official church history, as far as I know, said that Papias was a man of literary intellect, and second, that when Papias talks about the death of Judas Iscariot, he gives an account that contradicts both Matthew and Acts. So, I mean, how, how, can we really trust him, Ben? Well, um, to take those points separately, mm-hmm. um, Eusebius didn't think much of Papias. Mm-hmm. But I think the reason he didn't think much of Papias is that Papias uh, was a millenarian. He thought mm-hmm. that there was going to be the kingdom of God on earth, a view which was very popular in second century, uh, particularly Asia Minor in second century, uh, where Papias lived. And Eusebius was strongly anti-millenarian. So on on that that sort of key point, it really mattered to Eusebius in terms of the controversies of his own day on that point. And, And he refers to some things that Papias says about the millennium that uh, you know that, that there are going to be miraculous um, provision of food. We have we have actually a, a, another fragment um, of Papias that talks about that. I mean, he thought this was Eusebius objected to the to the earthly millennium. Uh, he objected to the idea of um, uh, sort of earthly joys of um, uh, good food and drink and that sort of thing mm-hmm. and thought that you know that the christian hope is is heavenly and way above that so he strongly disagreed with APS on on that millenarian approach and i think that at least that accounts for eusebius's um contempt for APS really mm-hmm. because he thinks he got this point so wrong um and a pa- uh, eusebius is always very careful how he quotes people, you see. And um, we don't know what Papias also said that Eusebius didn't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there may have been other things too that uh, he, he just uh, he, he ignores. So 
Eusebius isn't necessarily a terribly reliable figure in this respect because Eusebius was very opinionated and he judged these early Christian writers uh, basically by whether they agreed with him. Um, the other point about the death of Judas, you see, what I, and Papias wrote five books, you know, actually, so in the ancient sense, but a very substantial piece of ancient literature into which he put his, all these gospel traditions that he collected. And it's, it's rather remarkable at first sight that among the early church writers who quote Papias, and there are others besides Eusebius, but we really only have a very few of these Jesus traditions quoted from Papias, of which the death of Judas is one. And why is that? I think the reason is that most of Papias's book was simply extremely similar to our Gospels, particularly probably to, to Mark and Matthew. And the early church writers saw no point in quoting traditions from Papias, which they had, as it were, in a more authoritative form in the Gospels of, of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and maybe John. So they ignored most of what was in Papias. And what they did was to quote just a few examples of things in Papias that they didn't find anywhere else. So the story of the death of Judas was sort of um, interesting to them because it was novel and, and different. And, and uh, I think actually they rather liked it. But the point is, I think, that there may have been, you know, I mean, someone collecting gospel traditions at the end of the uh, first century and filling a large book with them, it's not surprising if he finds one or two legendary uh, elements, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. one or two things that we don't think are so trustworthy. Um, but I think the reason these are the ones we have in the quotations is precisely because that's what they were like, mm -hmm. not because they were typical of um, the whole of Papias's work. Mm. Uh, I think it's my understanding that the whole thing about Judas could have in fact been kind of a way of Papias trash-talking Judas, as it were, and that be, hey, this is what I think actually happened. Yes, yes. I mean, I think uh, I think one reason early church writers, I forget who actually quotes that, but, um, you know, the, the, the church father who quotes it, I, I think, um, as I said, found it interesting because it's not in our Gospels, um, but also he rather liked it mm -hmm. because it, it, it does throw a very bad light on Judas. It's meant to. And it, it actually uses a, a kind of conventional theme that, um, you know, wicked people come to a bad end in that sort of way. Mm -hmm. Now, you do have a section here about the list of names that were used in first century Palestine. Now, a lot of people could be looking at that and thinking, well, this must prove that New Testament scholars are really bored because they're going around gathering lists of names. But there actually is some relevance to a list of names, isn't there? Yes, I'm very keen on, on, on these Jewish names of the time because, mm -hmm. you know, just within the last decade or so, a um, few years before I wrote the first edition of the book, just within this recent period, uh, we suddenly have all this evidence available. Um, lots and lots of um, examples of, of the names of, of Jews living in Palestine at the time of Jesus. Um, so at last we can actually, and we've got so many of them, we can actually um, compile reliable statistics as to which names were the most popular and uh, which were used but not so popular. Um, but I mean, roughly speaking, what, what results is that there are a, a small number of names which were extremely popular. 
Um, and then there were lots and lots of other names that were quite rare. And it's because some of these names, you see Simon. Simon was the most popular male name in, uh, in the time of Jesus. So if someone was called Simon, you couldn't just say Simon. You had to say something else about him to identify which Simon. So you might give him a nickname, Simon Peter, or you might um, use his profession, Simon the Tanner, who appears in Acts, um, or Simon the Zealot, another of Jesus' disciples. He had two Simons among mm-hmm. Jesus' disciples, Jesus among the twelve. So they got to have distinguishing. So you, you can see how the way that names are used in the Gospels actually fits precisely the various ways in which names were used um, at the time of Jesus. Um, And the really key thing, which I think people who didn't read the book very carefully uh, missed, and I therefore come back to it in these additional chapters, is that if you, as it were, work out the proportions, um, the ratios of the the various popular names, which comes top of the list and and so on, down to, say, the, the first dozen or so most popular male names, it's easy to do it with men, can also do it with women, then uh, it's remarkable that um, if you compile the same statistics for all the Gospels, put all four Gospels together and put and add in so that, you know, to, 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 so that you've got as much data as possible, add in the Palestinian Jewish figures who appear in Acts. So all the Gospels and the Palestinian uh, section of Acts and you know you come out with the most popular name and so on and the the relative popularity of the names correlates remarkably well Um, I mean I was just really very surprised to find that it correlates so well because I think maybe statistically there wasn't enough material in the Gospels to to do this but in fact the, the, the relative popularity of the names in the Gospels, correlates terribly well with what we now know from the data. And the point about this is that nobody, even if someone at the, at the time of Jesus, actually knew the relative, it's very difficult to know in your own society, you know, you, you don't have statistics, mm-hmm. you might have the impression that Simon's a very popular name, but you wouldn't necessarily know that it's more popular than Judas, which was also very popular, you know. But even supposing that someone did know uh, the relative proportions, the relative popularity of names. Um, We're not talking about one author of the gospel reproducing this in his own gospel. We're talking about four different authors. Mm -hmm. It's only when you put together the data from all these four writings plus acts that you have enough data to provide a list of relative popularity. Um, So this was not designed by anyone. This is how the evidence comes out. And and we, with our knowledge of the ancient data, are really the first people to be able to see this. Yeah, Uh, I think that a lot of people are aware, compare the Gospels to, say, fictional works of our day and age. And it'd be one thing to say the Harry Potter novels reflect the usages of names when J.K. Rowling was writing them, but to say that she wrote the, the novels that say, 200 years from now, and they were set in our modern times, and she got the names right, that would be something really incredible, because most researchers wouldn't do something like that. And then to say four gospel writers did the exact same thing, it kind of stretches credulity, doesn't it? 
It does. And actually, it's rather interesting if you, you know, quite a lot of people have written uh, novels set in the time of Jesus, you know, yeah. about the characters and so forth. And they always get the names wrong. I mean, they, they use names like Esther, for example, because yeah. it's in the Old Testament. But Esther was, was scarcely used by Jewish women at the time of Jesus. So they they get it wrong. But mm. the other thing is that when people write fiction and, and therefore have to give names to their fictional characters, they usually give every character a different name. So if you were writing uh, a novel today, you might well know that the name uh, George has become very popular now in, in this country because of Prince George. But you wouldn't have six characters called George because it's so confusing. Mm -hmm. um, most fictional writers only have one character with each name, even though they know that's unrealistic. For the for, for the fiction to work, for it to be it to be um, you know for it not to be confusing, um, people don't do that. Yeah. Whereas in the Gospels, you know, you've got a large number of women called Mary, mm -hmm. and of course the the mistake a lot of people make is to identify these different women called Mary. But the fact is that huge number of early Jewish women of the period were called Mary, much the most popular mm. woman's name. And as I say, you've got various Simonses, you've got various Jameses. It's all very confusing. And I don't think a fictional writer would have done that. Mm. Gospel writers do it because they knew of these actual figures and they distinguish between one another in the way that Jews at the time would have distinguished them. Simon the Zealot, Simon Peter, Simon the Tanner, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, Mary the wife of Clopas, Mary from Magdala. You know, those are the ways of distinguishing these characters which were in use at the time. Do we even really need to look at just modern novels and such? In, in the second and third century, there were works written about Jesus, like Jesus as a young child or things such as that, and they are seen as fictional today. How do they compare with the name usages? Yes, very few of these actually add any names to the ones they got from the Gospels. But those that do... I mean, they really don't stand up to this, this kind of test. I mean, it looks very much as though they knew the Gospels, they took over names, and they, you know, added a, added a few names. But it, it really doesn't it doesn't work in the in the way that the Gospels do on on this point. Now, let's talk about some names in particular in the Gospels. The twelve. There are some yes. people who look at the accounts and say. Geez, the gospel writers don't even get the names of the 12 correct. They disagree. Okay, yes. Um, th there's, there's actually just only one of the disciples which... I mean, basically, we have three lists of the 12. We have four lists of the 12. We have one in Mark, one in Matthew, which are very, very similar. And then we have a slightly different one in Luke, which he repeats in, in Acts. Mm -hmm. um, so we have three versions, if you like, and Matthew and Mark are very similar. So let's let's call it two versions. The really key point on which they differ is that Mark has a disciple called Judas, the son of James, mm -hmm. and Luke probably calls him Thaddeus. Actually, the scribes were a bit muddled by this, so that it, the textual tradition is a bit mixed up. But it looks like... Um, uh, I'm sorry, it's the other way around. It's Mark who has Thaddeus, mm -hmm. Thaddeus and uh, Luke who has Judas, son of James. And I think that actually, if you look, you have to really 
knows some detail of how names were used to explain this. But Thaddeus is an Aramaic version of the Greek name Theodotus, mm-hmm. which, was, which was popular with Jews as a Greek name because the Jews liked the names that began Theo, which means God. So they were kind of uh, religious-sounding religious names. So mm-hmm. this guy was called Theodotus, and his friends speaking Aramaic abbreviated that to Tadai. But if you lived in first century Jewish Palestine, you had a Greek name, you would also have had a Jewish name, a Semitic name. So it's perfectly likely that this this guy was called Judas, Judah, Yehuda, his Hebrew name. Um, and he had both, uh, I mean, that, that people like to do this. They, they like to be sort of cosmopolitan. They like to have both a, a native Hebrew name and a Greek name, which was kind of an international name. So this guy was called both Judas, and Theodotus, and Theodotus, abbreviated to Tadai, was the, as it were, the familiar name, which they used among, the 12 used among themselves. Luke's list, I think, is a bit more official. Um, So he has a more formal name, Judas, son of James, with the patronymic. But notice, because the name is Judas, which is one of these incredibly popular names, he has has to supply his father's name, to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot, who's also a member of the Twelve. Um, and James is also a very common name. So actually Judas, son of James, is a bit dubious as a, as a sort of identifying. It would work within a small circle. But I, I think, you know, Luke prefers the Hebrew name with the patronymic, son of James. Uh, Mark prefers the, uh, the um, colloquial name by which he was known among among the, the twelve. And that's that's the only case where there's any real difficulty about reconciling the two lists. Um, and people have suggested other explanations, you know, that maybe one of those two people dropped out of the twelve and Jesus appointed someone else, so we have lists. But I don't think that's at all plausible. I think actually once you think about how the names worked, it, it actually does make sense. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things you have listed as a way of knowing who the sources are, is something about the inclusio. Could you explain what an inclusio is and how it works with the Gospels? Well, an inclusio is a literary device which is very widely used in the ancient world in all sorts of ways. But basically, it means you have a, a section of text, and at the beginning of the text and at the end of the text, you have something similar, so that when you get to the end, it reminds you of the beginning. So, in a sense, it's a way of marking off a certain amount of text. So, you could do this at the beginning and the end of a whole piece of literature. You could do it with a short section of, of literature within a book. And very often, the the points that correspond at the beginning and the end um, tell you something about the material that's enclosed within those two points. Um, you could think of them as bookends, if you like. So the, uh-huh. the material within the two bookends, um, the two bookends themselves, the points that correspond between them, tell you something about the uh, material within. Um, and as I say, it's a very common ancient literary device. There's lots of other examples in the New Testament that use it in different ways. So it, it, it was something was very, very familiar to people who read ancient literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the 
examples I've thought of using before. Well, I know I might get from you even is that Matthew, for instance, ends his first chapter talking about Jesus being called Emmanuel, and then he ends his whole gospel with, I'm with you always for the end of the age. And the reader is supposed to get the idea that the whole of the gospel is God with us. Exactly. That's a great example. Mm-hmm. Now, when we look at the Gospel of Mark, the first disciple named is Peter. And then when we get to the end, if you end the Gospel at Mark sixteen eight, which I'm pretty sure you do, then, yes. then he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. And it might seem like it's just a powerful preaching point saying, hey, I'm going to reinstate Peter. And you know, that could be included as part of it, but the main thing I think Mark's doing is saying, Peter is my source. Yes, I think that's right. Um, and I, I think you have to put that observation together with the fact that Peter is much the most frequently named character within the gospel narrative, mm-hmm. apart, from mm-hmm. Jesus, apart from Jesus himself, of course. Mm-hmm. So you've got Peter named at the beginning and the end, and frequently named between those two points. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, but there's another point about it that um, uh, I think corroborates this, and I maybe didn't make enough of this in the first edition, so I say a good deal more about it in the second edition. And that is, um, the people who know the story of Mark's Gospel will remember that Peter is present at almost all the events of Jesus' ministry until the point where Jesus is on trial before the high priest and Peter denies Jesus. And Peter just drops out of the story at that point. And actually, all the male disciples have already dropped out of the story just before that. And the the events that follow that, which are the crucifixion and the discovery of the empty tomb, I mean, these are absolutely key events in Mark's narrative. Mm -hmm. So if if, if eyewitness testimony matters, surely... He needed eyewitness testimony at that, at that, in that last section of his narrative where Peter is clearly not present. And I think he supplies that eyewitness testimony for us very, very obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, at the death of Jesus, he says that there are three of Jesus' women disciples, and he names them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome. And they, they're watching when Jesus dies. And then two of them, the two Marys, uh, he says, are there when Jesus is buried in the tomb, observing. And then all those three women are named again. Mm-hmm. They're the people who go to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning and discover that it's empty and that Jesus is risen. Um, and if you look at the way in which those women are named by Mark, um, their role in the narrative, actually they do hardly anything except see. He uses uh, several different verbs of seeing, observing, but that's what they do. That's what they do on each of those three occasions. Basically, they are observers. They see. So I think it's absolutely clear that Mark is saying, you know, these are the eyewitnesses. And if you're concerned that Peter's not present, here are the eyewitnesses. Here are the people the story depends on. Yeah. Now, you also have another clue in where you talk the plural the singer narrative. Could you tell us what that is? Um, yes, this is the way that Mark tells some of his stories in the gospel. He begins the story with a plural. In other words, he says, they got into a boat and and went to the other side or something like that, where they means Jesus and the disciples. And then when the story, as it were, gets going after they arrive or whatever it is, then he switches to talking in the singular about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And what he's doing is 
as it were, manipulating the perspective from which we see the story. So when we when it switches to the singular, then we are in the position of the disciples um, observing what Jesus is doing. So we, as it were, switch from seeing the disciples in the boat with Jesus, and then we are actually in the position of the disciples. We're mm-hmm. seeing the narrative from their perspective. Um, so if you look at this issue of perspective on the gospel narratives, um, you'll find that much of the time it's the whole group of disciples. But then, of course, there are those occasions where Jesus takes aside the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. So then you get the perspective of those three. And then occasionally, and finally at the end with Peter's denials, you get perspective which is purely Peter. So mm-hmm. if you if you sort of ask yourself, you know, what what's the what's the focalization, it's a technical literary term for it. How has Mark set up the focalization? From whose perspective are we viewing the events of the ministry? Um, and if there's a consistent perspective, it turns out to be Peter's. Mm-hmm. So I think Mark has as you as it were rather subtly written his story in such a way that we see it happening through the eyes of Peter. Yeah, my, my father-in-law, Mike Lacona, as listeners of a show now here, asked me to do some research for him recently with uh, going to a library and looking up information from within the past 50 years on the Gospel of Mark, looking up what scholars thought about who wrote it and when was it written. And a number of scholars were saying, and in this scenario, let's imagine that we don't have the writings of Papias at all. And so there was no way of knowing who who Mark's sources were. There was no reason why we should connect this gospel to Peter at all. I'm guessing you'd say even if we didn't have Papias, you'd disagree with that claim entirely, right? Um, yes, indeed. Yes, I mean, I think I think the gospel itself, um, you know, makes pretty clear that it's the gospel whose source was, was predominantly Peter's testimony. Mm-hmm. Now, another aspect we need to talk about with the reliability of the gospels and eyewitness testimony is, of course, oral tradition, something that you've written a great deal about. Now, people who hear that, what their critical friends say about this, they often pick up something from someone more like Bart Ehrman, who will say, well, you have someone who goes to a town, they tell a merchant about the story of Jesus, and the merchant then goes and he tells his wife, and his wife tells his friend, and his friend goes and tells someone else that they do business with. And this is, these are how the stories of Jesus were spread, and it's compared to the telephone game or Chinese whispers, as it's called in some places. Jesus died and people started telling stories about him in order to convert people to the faith. When somebody converted, they told the story to somebody else. That person told the stories to somebody else. That person told the stories to somebody else, and that person told the stories to somebody else. This went on for year after year after year, decade after decade, before the gospel writers were, uh, were themselves writing. What happens when stories are put in circulation orally? Stories get changed. If you ever had your children play the game telephone uh, in a birthday party where one kid tells a story to the next kid sitting at the birthday party, and then the story goes to the next kid, to the next kid, goes around the circle until it comes back to the first kid, it's a different story. If it weren't a different story, it'd be a pretty dumb birthday party game to play. The stories change. What happens if you play this game not in one living room with a bunch of kids from the same socioeconomic class who all speak the same language? What if you play the game for 35, 45, 55 years? 
in different languages, in different countries, telling stories that the people who are telling the stories were not there to witness. What happens to the stories? The stories get changed. Is this an accurate description of oral tradition? Um, no, I don't think it is. And I think very few gospel scholars would agree with him on that point. Um, uh, oral tradition takes many forms, and, mm-hmm. and, and this is actually one rather important thing from the modern study of oral tradition that um, is, is quite difficult to say oral tradition is always like this or always like that. It varies according to culture and, and, and varies according to what sort of traditions are being transmitted. Dif- societies sometimes treat different sorts. I mean, societies sometimes, as it were, distinguish between entertaining uh, fictional traditions and rather serious important historical ones and they deal with the transmission of them in different ways mm-hmm. um, but one thing that often happens is that um, oral traditions are entrusted to people who are responsible for preserving and uh, as it were guarding the traditions and you know suppose you have a community I think most early Christian communities would actually have had contact with eyewitnesses, but suppose you had a community that didn't have direct contact with eyewitnesses. Um, there would be someone there who was kind of the authorised tradent, I think, mm. of the traditions. Yeah. And actually, oral societies, if they want to, um, can preserve traditions very faithfully. It all depends on their attitude to the traditions. Do right. they care about that? Or do they treat them as, uh, you know, fairy tales? That The great thing about a fairy tale is you might, retell it in an original way and preserving it's not the point um, but I think I think our evidence about how people regarded the history of Jesus really makes it likely that they would have been concerned um, to preserve these traditions but the other point I made about I don't think we are really dependent on all the tradition as such I think I think uh, we are primarily dependent on the eyewitnesses themselves. Mm-hmm. And suppose, you see, suppose Mark is writing in, 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 in the Church of Rome. A lot of people think uh, Mark's Gospel was written in Rome. Now, Mark himself, you know, has had a long life story of being a Christian teacher. Um, he would have heard the traditions originally in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and then he's later in his life, he's, he's become... Peter's disciple and, and interpreter. So he's heard all these traditions from Peter. Now he's not going to, he, he's, when he, if he's going to write a gospel, he is not going to prefer, surely, whatever was being said orally in the Church of Rome to what he has in his own memory and in his, from his contact with Peter. You know, he has much better sources right. than the oral tradition in the Church of Rome. Mm-hmm. So I think while eyewitnesses were available, gospel writers would have gone to them as the authoritative sources, the best sources. And as I say, you know, I think there's a good case for saying that uh, Mark took much of his material from Peter, but he may have supplemented that. You know, I I talk about the story of Bartimaeus in Mark's Gospel, rather interesting, a a beggar, one one of the kind of outcasts of society, a mere beggar um, who has a personal name in Mark. It's highly unusual. And I think that Mark might well have heard Bartimaeus' story from Bartimaeus himself when he was a member of the Jerusalem church. Mm and the point I made earlier about the eyewitness of the women disciples, uh, now, it's hard to tell. Mark could have relied, as it were, on Peter 
who relayed the testimony of the women, but Mark could have heard it from the women themselves. So, but in any case, you know, there's no reason to think that Mark is more than one step away from the eyewitnesses themselves. Mind everyone, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. We're talking to Dr. Richard Bauckham about his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the second edition. But if you're here next week, we're going to be talking a bit about worldview thinking and such. My guest next week is going to be Jeff Myers from Summit Ministries. We're going to talk about his book, The Secret Battle of Ideas About God. So if you want to talk about some ways God is viewed in the world today, Come back here next weekend. Even if you don't, come back here next week anyway, because you're sure going to get something out of it. For now, let's get back to Dr. Turbacom talking about book Jesus and VR Witnesses. Now, something I've told people before is if you go to many Q&As today about gospel reliability and such, the speaker who's often trying to defend the gospel should be told, well, geez, if this is so important, you think someone would have written it down earlier. And what I tell people about this is, Okay, let's suppose you're an ancient person living back then, and you have two ways of getting a very important story out. You can write it down, which is extremely costly, because even Galatians would have cost about 500 bucks to write, let alone send and everything else. It could only reach people who were capable of reading, and it would take a long time. Or you could use the oral tradition, which is free, very reliable, and can reach anyone who speaks the language. Which one are you going to go with? Do you think that's an accurate explanation of why these things also took a long time to be written down? Yes, I I think that's fair enough. Um, I think we should also reckon with the possibility that there were earlier written texts. Right. I mean, if there was anything like a full-scale gospel, I think we would know about it. We'd, We'd hear about it in some of the evidence somehow or other. So... I, I, I still think that Mark was the first person to write, as it were, a, a full narrative of Jesus, which mm-hmm. um, you know reported a whole lot of the traditions about Jesus and put them together into a full-scale life story. Um, I think Mark was the first person to do that. But I think there may well have been smaller collections of gospel material, um, a collection of sayings of Jesus. There might have been, as it were, texts that were written as resources for preachers and teachers Mm -hmm. so that they didn't circulate um, generally, perhaps, but but were used by... I mean, people in the ancient world did use notes, actually, quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Before you get to publishable, as it were, texts, people people used notes a great deal. They would read something and make notes and so on. So um, it's perfectly plausible that there were written notes about Jesus, collections of sayings, you know... um, a few stories that um, uh, a particular teacher valued and 
wanted to use frequently in his teaching, that sort of thing. There may well have been, uh, we don't know, there's no evidence either way, but we shouldn't just assume that there was nothing written uh, before Mark wrote the first full-scale gospel. And Luke, of course, in his preface, right. and I think Luke is the second gospel to be written after Mark, hmm. uh, Luke, Luke refers to many who attempted to do what he's doing in his gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you have to allow for a bit of exaggeration there because it's, it's a convention. If yeah. you're writing a historical preface, uh, you have to refer to people who've done something like this before and explain why your work is needed. You know, other people have done this. Why should I, I be doing it now? And you have to ask, well, justify your own work. So many, maybe, it, you know, it, it doesn't mean a dozen, um, mm-hmm. far fewer than that. Um, but who are the many? I mean, they include Mark's gospel, I think, uh, obviously, um, because Luke used Ms. Mark as a source. But we don't know who the others were. Yeah. And they may have been some of these small collections of material, which, of course, were not preserved later because the full-scale gospels took over. You know, in the full-scale gospels, you had these small collections incorporated. Um, you didn't need the small collections anymore when you had the full-scale gospel. So it's perfectly intelligible that these would not have been preserved. So maybe just a little hint of that in, in Luke's preface. When you talk about the whole uh, sayings and such being recorded, the last time you were on here, I was very surprised to hear you give an opinion, one that I, in fact, agree with and such, that you are very skeptical of the existence of Q. So when you talk about written accounts that could include the sayings and such, does that mean you would change your mind on Q or what? Um, yes, yes. I think when I wrote the first edition, I did still believe in Q, mm-hmm. though I scarcely mentioned it in the book for various reasons. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I have changed my mind. And really, to put it very briefly, I have for a long time found Q implausible because it isn't an intelligible text. If you mm. put together all the stuff that's said to come yeah. from Q, and of course that's the stuff that Matthew and Luke have in common, um, what you get is something that starts off as though it's going to be a narrative of Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry. You know, it starts with the, John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus and so on. You think you've got a narrative, and a little bit more narrative, and then it sort of turns into merely sayings. Mm-hmm. So what is it? Is it a collection of sayings? Is it a gospel with a narrative? It just doesn't seem to add up to a, an intelligible genre of literature. Mm-hmm. So I was unhappy with Q, but I hung on to it because the major alternative among current scholars uh, is that Luke used Matthew. So the common material between Matthew and Luke was taken by Luke from Matthew. Um, And I've always found that very implausible because of the way that the common material appears in both Luke and Matthew, the procedure by which Luke would have had to take the material from Matthew Mm. and used it to compose. It uh, it just doesn't make sense to me. And uh, very few scholars have actually taken seriously the possibility that it was the other way around, that Matthew used Luke. And once I began to think about it, and there have been a, a, a couple of um, good arguments in favour of it recently, good presentations of the argument um, that um, Matthew used Luke, um, it's the one that seems most probable to me. And so for the time being, I'm using it as a kind of working hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um but the result of that is rather interesting if it makes Luke the second gospel, so that Luke used, whereas the standard opinion of people who 
believing Q is that Luke used two written sources, Mark and Q, and he had other sources we don't know for the stuff that's only in Luke. Um, that's one possibility. The Luke used Matthew people, of course, have Luke, had Mark and Matthew as Luke's sources, and then again, it's the material that's only in Luke. Um, but on my view, what we actually have for Luke is Mark as a, as a major source, and Luke clearly respected Mark's gospel, um, and I'm, I think he did so because he knew it was based on Peter's testimony. But then, apart from the material Luke drew from Mark, there's simply everything else in Luke's gospel. Yeah. And we no longer have any way of saying, you know, this this material comes from a different source from that. And, and I think we can now actually take rather more seriously, perhaps, the uh, presentation of Luke as a historian, the self-presentation he makes as a historian in preface. And the way ancient historians often worked was to have some major eyewitness source or sources. But then they also uh, interviewed various people that they could find, various different sources, anyone who had something significant to tell them. So I can imagine that Luke's material that is not from Mark actually comes from quite a wide variety of, of eyewitness informants, and probably we'll never be able to reconstruct that. But um, it, it seems to me that maybe Luke is the gospel, and we might expect this from the preface, but Luke is the gospel writer who pursues the method of an ancient historian, as it were, uh, in the in, in the best possible way, in the most typical way. Now, you've got a section here also on anonymous tradition or eyewitness testimony, because one of the things we often hear when we interact with people who disagree with Christianity is that, you know, you can't trust the gospel because we don't even know who wrote these. These books are anonymous. They don't tell their authors. I mean, first off, uh, I mean, is that really a problem, even if it is anonymous? Aren't most works in the ancient world anonymous? Well, exactly. And I think the I think the idea that the Gospels were anonymous really became, as it were, the, the usual thing to say about them mm-hmm. in the era of the form critics, because folk literature is anonymous, you see. So it's very much part of the form critics' attitude to the Gospels, that they are uh, really authored by the people, the community, not by individual writers. Now, we moved on from that, and most people now would say with some confidence that you know, we are dealing with individual authors who made something of their sources. They're not just reflecting the community traditions. Um, but the idea that the Gospels are anonymous has remained you know, the, the, the standard view of it, or, of them. Um, but as you say, um, a great deal of ancient literature is anonymous in the technical sense that the authors do not name themselves within the text. And actually, if you think about modern literature, if you take uh, a novel down from your bookcase, and if you tear out the title page, mm-hmm. it's anonymous. Right. Um, many writers don't name themselves within the body of their text. Right. But the, you see, why didn't ancient writers, uh, why, why did they so often not name themselves within the text. You'd think they'd want to be known as the authors. And the answer was that ancient literature uh, was written within a context where people who knew people knew who the author was. And typically, you know, ancient literature would begin uh, among a circle of friends and then it would move on to be circulated more widely. 
Um, and Luke's Gospel, you know, Luke's Gospel is dedicated to a man called Theophilus. It would be unthinkable that someone to whom a work was dedicated didn't know who the author of the work was. Mm-hmm. So Theophilus at least knew who Luke was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Luke's Gospel may well have begun in a circle of friends around Theophilus. Sometimes, you know, people wrote, as it were, a draft, and they got feedback from the from their immediate circle, and they, they sort of revised it or something like that. But in other words, ancient literature tended to originate within a context where people knew who the author was. So when copies of it are made, and people take a copy home, or in the case of the early church, where they send a copy to mm. another Christian community or uh, somebody traveling through gets a copy and takes it home to their community. Uh, When these kind of things happen, the knowledge of who the author is goes along with the text. And then when you put it on a library shelf, for example, you have to have a label and the scribes would add the, the, the name that they... And the argument about the Gospels, which I think is really quite compelling, is that once an early Christian community had more than one gospel. They had to have a way of distinguishing them. They had to say this is this gospel and this is that gospel. There had to be names attached to them. Um, and that would be true when they put them on their li- church library shelf, they right. had to have labels, um, or probably when they read them aloud in Christian worship. They could no longer say this is the gospel because they only had one gospel. They would have to say this is the gospel according to so-and-so. Yeah. So I think there's a very good case of saying that the names go back to a very early stage and in that sense are likely to be reliable. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think it's awfully odd to imagine there was a church, say, in Antioch meeting together and they open the doors for church one day and lo and behold, there's a gospel seen by the doorstep and they say, hey, we don't know who wrote this, but it sounds good. Let's, let's treat it like scripture. Exactly, yes. Yes, they would want to know on what authority do we have yep. this? You know, mm-hmm. they don't want just anything. They, they yeah. want something written by someone who is in a position to be able to write it. I think Martin Hinger also said that, quite like in the ancient world, that the Gospels offer could have been included on the manuscript itself, such as in a seal or such, that wouldn't be copied but everyone who picked it up would know who wrote it. Does that seem fair to you? Yes, yes, that's possible. And um, and quite often also, manuscripts, when they were copied, had a title not at the beginning, but at the end. Mm -hmm. Actually, a lot of our gospel manuscripts actually do have a a title at the end. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there there are various ways in which the scribes might have indicated the the origin of the gospel. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, you also have a section in here on eyewitness memory, because sometimes it seems when I'm dialoguing with skeptics of Christianity, it's kind of like a lose-lose situation, because we're told, we have a gospel, so by eyewitness, aren't by eyewitnesses, so you can't trust them. And then, if you can do that, it's like, well, eyewitness testimony isn't reliable anyway, so you can't trust them. So, either way you go, it looks like you lose. So, how does that work with the gospels, though? I mean, should we be skeptical of eyewitness testimony in the case of the Gospels? Well, 
I think in the first place, you know, that some people have said, well, eyewitnesses are unreliable, so it doesn't make any difference whether yeah. these go back to eyewitnesses or not. Yeah. And the first thing to say is that eyewitnesses are, at the very least, eyewitnesses are in a position to know what they're talking about. Mm. And that's, in, in terms of historical sources generally, um, we do value eyewitness reports very highly. Now, there's a lot of uh, discussion of how reliable eyewitness testimony is, and there's been a lot of um, study of this in um, cognitive psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I drew on a lot of that literature in the first edition of the book. And where I think a big mistake is made is a lot of the study of eyewitness testimony has been related to eyewitness testimony in legal contexts. In other words, what people do when they give up when they give testimony to police or are investigating a case, yeah. or what they do when they give testimony in court, when they're called as witnesses in a court case. And it's perfectly true that a good deal of this research uh, seems to show that eyewitness testimony in these circumstances has to be treated quite carefully. And psychologists have actually sort of drawn up some quite useful guidelines for police and uh, and judges and so forth as to how, how to deal with eyewitness testimony uh, because it can be it can be unreliable and there are various reasons why. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, some of this goes back to a point we made earlier about the eyewitnesses not being um, mere bystanders who were not interested in what was happening. And very often, the eyewitnesses in court are people who weren't interested at the time in observing what they're now being asked to recall. Um, the you know the, the the sort of car it was, or the colour of someone's clothing, or you know these kinds of things. People don't necessarily notice if their attention is not fixed on that. There's also a very odd phenomenon, apparently, it's not so odd if you think about it, but apparently in situations where someone is wielding a gun or something of that kind, eyewitnesses, uh, they, they tend to focus on the weapon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they don't, they don't notice anything else. Mm. So that, that can be a, a problem in certain sort of case. Um, but the thing to say about all of this is that the people who research eyewitness testimony in legal contexts are quite clear that the problems lie in the special contexts that they're dealing with um, and by no means necessarily apply to eyewitness testimony in, in other cases. So we cannot just transfer, as Bart Ehrman does, for example, the proven unreliability of eyewitnesses in court to other kinds of contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be very worrying if we had to, because we all rely on eyewitness testimony every day of our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, people tell us things, and unless we've got reason for suspecting them, we, um, we accept what people say. And we couldn't get through life if we didn't do that. We can't be suspicious of every claim that someone right. uh, makes to tell us things. Mm-hmm. History is much more like ordinary life than it is like a a court case.
Back to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Borders podcast. Again, I'm Nick Peters, your host. We're talking with Dr. Richard Bauckham about his second edition of his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Uh, people, what we do here, we really depend on you so much. You have no idea. You, the ordinary listener out there, can make a great difference to what goes on out here. And how do you do that? Well, you go to our website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, and there's a link, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now, you go and click on the sublink in there, and you get taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus, the Ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona, my in-laws. You make your donation there, and you get in touch with me, or Ari, or Mike, or Debbie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to you. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will give that donation, men. It will be tax deductible. You can also go on Amazon and buy ebooks that I've written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian. Or you can buy ebooks that I've coven, Defining Inerrancy, Groundless, God and Natural Disasters, Christian Answers to This Generation's Questions. And one more thing you can do to help us out here, jewelry. Yeah, we actually have a jewelry store here. And you go and you buy something. And I'm especially talking to you guys out there because the ladies in your life love jewelry. My own wife has a knicker allergy, so she can't wear a lot, but she loves to wear it when she can. So, guys, you can go and you can make a purchase of jewelry for that special lady in your life. And whatever you buy, 25% of the purchase price goes to deeper waters. You get in touch with me if you want to find out more about how to do that and such. So guys, I mean, this is a great tip. You can support a ministry and do something special about laying your life to make up that screw up that you recently did. Or you can get some insurance to make up that screw up that I know you're going to make in the future. Now, normally I'd ask our guest if he has has something, organization he'd like to see people donate to, but Dr. Barkham asked me to pass on that today. So we're going to do that this time. But to get back to the thing about eyewitness testimony, um, something that I've considered people talk about is that uh, they say, well, geez, you can see all these studies made where you hear about an event like 9-11. Now, when 9-11 took place, I was in Tennessee and I was in a Bible college. And around 8.45 or so, I remember, about what section I was sitting in, someone came in before the sermon was about to start and said, and we need to be praying for the people of New York that a plane had just hit one of the towers. And I think I was thinking like most of us, saying, wow, some pastor, some, I mean, some pilot must have been drunk out of his mind. Or something. that makes no sense whatsoever. But it didn't stay in my mind for too long. Now, the sermon lasted maybe 45 minutes to an hour, but when it was done, had someone come out again and said, the second tower was hit by a plane. And at that point, everyone knew we were under attack. And we went to the area of the college that had a television, if we didn't have class, and we all watched what was taking place there. Now, according to a lot of skeptics, they'll say, well, you know what? There have been studies done. They talk to college students about these events. And years later, they get more and more things wrong about what happened that day. But I've always thought this isn't really a fair comparison because I think if you really, if it'd be so great because I don't know if anyone's done this kind of study yet, but compare what people like college students and such remember about 9 11 to say someone who was 
a first responder on the scene at the time or someone who had a loved one who died in the events, a very close loved one. And I'm pretty sure their memories would be a whole lot better than my memory of the event. I mean, that, does that seem like the mistake a lot of people make of the gospel? So you think that the dispassionate observer is there and... What's really going on with eyewitness testimony of Gospels is it's someone who's directly involved and they will remember it because they tell the story over and over because it defines their life so well. Yes. Uh, I mean, again, we're, we're dealing with a specific sort of memory. Right. They, they call this flashbulb memory. Right. Uh, and I, I mean, I can also remember exactly where and how I heard about 9-11 mm-hmm. um, and a number of other big public events like that. But mm-hmm. these are... Story, they always concern some big public event, right? And they always concern the people who hear about this um, by means of the public media. So you may have seen it on television, or you may have heard it on the radio, or you hear it from someone who did hear it on the radio, perhaps mm. in your case. Um, and so they're actually a, a specific category of memory that didn't happen in the ancient world, but it depends on modern media. And the thing about them, I mean, it is rather curious because I think we all sort of in, intuitively think we must that must be right. We have such this vivid memory of the circumstances in which we remember 9-11 or whatever it was. We remember first hearing about it. Um, but the evidence is apparently that people do get this wrong and they... Um, they remember seeing it on television, you know, um, uh, just after it happened. And in fact, they didn't actually see it on television until several weeks later. You know, they just get all these circumstances mixed up. But it's actually not the event itself they get wrong. What they get wrong is the circumstances in which they first heard about it. Mm-hmm. But it's a very special sort of memory. And I, I think we, we just cannot generalize from some of these special categories um, to eyewitness testimony in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one example I could use is, for instance, if you had been attending my wedding, for instance, you would probably remember a few things. About it. So, yeah, I, I think they played that song, and I think this is who the minister was, and things of that sort. But if you ask me or my wife about it, you are going to get a much more different account of what happened, and probably a much more accurate one since we were so passionately involved in it. Yes, I'm sure that's right. And the other thing that's proven about memory is that frequent rehearsal of memories is the way that you can ensure stability of memory. So Mm -hmm. it's really if you remember something very soon after it happened um, and you tell the story to someone and then you go on telling the story, that's how it remains in your memory. Mm -hmm. Um, Because actually a great deal of what goes into our short-term memory doesn't survive into our long-term memory. Right. Um, So sometimes, if you ask me to dredge my memory about something that happened 40 years ago, it's not there to be dredged, as it were, because it was only ever in my short-term memory. Mm -hmm. So long-term memory is selective. It has to be. Otherwise, we'd be overwhelmed with our memories of all kinds of uh, unnecessary things that we we don't need to remember. You know, Um, in order for memory to be efficient, it has to be selective. So... Something has to get into long-term memory, which it does pretty quickly after the event, if we mm-hmm. if we remember it and rehearse it. Mm-hmm. And then we have to go on rehearsing it. You know, I don't imagine, you know, that Mark 
went to Peter and asked him to remember things that happened 30 years ago, which he had not been in the habit of remembering right. in the past 30 years. Of course not. I mean, these are stories that Peter was telling constantly um, in his teaching, um, and no doubt in personal context as well. And that requirement of frequent rehearsal for good memory is one that was obviously the case in the early church. These are stories that people told over and over. Mm-hmm. Now, something else we have to cover here is the idea that uh, many times if you read a book today and it's a scholarly book, for instance, your book here is loaded with footnotes. I know exactly what your sources were when you did this research. But a lot of people look at the Gospels and say, well, geez, the Gospels, they never named their sources. I mean, that's ancient writers did name their sources, but the Gospels didn't. Um, yes, they didn't have footnotes. That's the first point, of course. They just did not have footnotes. So, or, or appendices, or, or the kinds of things, the sort of apparatus that we can use now if we're publishing a book. They didn't have any of that. So, how could they do it? Um, they could tell you in a preface, which, mm-hmm. which Luke does do. But on the whole, ancient writers of historical narrative did not keep interrupting their narrative um, to tell you who their sources were. Um, nor indeed did they interrupt their narrative in any sort of way. In other words, they didn't, they didn't interrupt their narrative by, as it were, speaking directly to the readers. They didn't want to write so that you keep being conscious of the author addressing you about Mm -hmm. something around the narrative because they didn't want to interrupt the story. I mean, they are storytellers. All ancient writers of history were storytellers. They had to tell a good story. They had to hold their audience. They didn't write dry academic stuff that only students read when it's on their reading list and they have to. They wrote literature for people to enjoy reading and be instructed or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they, they, they were storytellers and they didn't want to spoil the story by constantly interrupting it with comments about, you know, where this came from and so on. Right. Occasionally they do that, but it's very occasional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did, did ancient writers very often do this kind of thing anyway, or were the sources more often just implicitly stated or assumed rather than explicitly said? Well, as I said, there is an issue of literary level, I think, and someone like the ancient historian Polybius, who is, as it were, a very uh, learned, um, accomplished writer and author and researcher, you know, he will tell you stuff in the prefaces and so forth that writers at a more popular literary level would not do, and the Gospels are written at a more popular literary level. Um, but there is, and I've shown this, I suggested it in the original edition, I've shown it with much more evidence in the mm-hmm. second edition. Um, there is, I think, a convention of what I call implicit reference to eyewitnesses. Right. And this occurs where the writer names someone in the story without saying that they were an eyewitness, but from the fact that they are named in the way that they are at that point in the story, mm-hmm. it becomes clear that they are the eyewitness source right. uh, for that piece of narrative. Um, the illustration I gave earlier of the women disciples in Mark, I think, is a very good example of that and correlates well with some some other examples um, from the ancient world. So I think... Um, I think I now actually have established the case for that sort of implicit reference to eyewitnesses 
um, a good deal more strongly in the new edition than I did in the first edition. I think another example you use is for 2D cyborgs on a road to Emmaus, that Cleopas is named and the other one isn't. <clears throat> and it could be yes. the other one's not named because maybe the other one had already died by then. So there's no point in mentioning because, hey, no one can go and talk to him. Yes, yes. Or it may just be that Cleopas was the one that Luke got the story from. Right. So this is Cleopas's version, and he didn't, he didn't hear else it was his version. Now, you also spend a lot of time talking about the Gospel of John, and a lot of people, I think, are very surprised by this because John is seen as just so very different from the other Gospels, but John seems to have a whole lot of eyewitness testimony, particularly with a beloved disciple, doesn't he? Yes. Um, the beloved disciple, of course, is... Uh, he appears as an anonymous character in the narrative. He's just called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Yeah. And yeah. he appears four or five times in that way. Uh, and then right at the end of the gospel, we're told, you know, this is the uh, this is the disciple who wrote these things. So there, there is, I think, uh, clearly an appeal to an eyewitness disciple there. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, uh, and this is interesting, actually, the, the fact that he's referred to in the third person you know, he doesn't say I in the first person. He refers to himself in the third person. That was normal practice of ancient historians. Right. If they appear, if they appear in their own narrative, Josephus, the Jewish historian, when he appears in his own narrative, he just says Josephus. He doesn't say mm-hmm. I. Um, and that's another thing about not, as it were, breaking into the storyline. You appear as a character in the narrative rather than, as it were, intruding yourself as author into the story. Yeah. So yeah. The, that, that third person re- reference to the beloved disciple is, is quite normal um, if, if the beloved disciple were the author. Yeah, yeah Xenophon did the same thing as Anabasis and... Julius Caesar did it in the Gallic Wars. And exactly, it, it's, yes. it's quite amusing that people still use this kind of thing today. Like when they talk about the Gospel of, of Matthew, say, well, why would the Gospel of Matthew speak about himself in the third person in the Gospel? And it's not a new objection. Augustine had to answer the same thing to Faustus back in the fourth century. So, uh, 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 yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think the answer is that. Is, com- is completely convincing. You know, there's just mm. so many examples of, of ancient authors doing this. Yeah. It, it just strikes me so often that many times people who make these kinds of claims really aren't reading ancient histories at all. And they're assuming that modern writing is the way that it should be done. If the ancients didn't write like moderns, where that's how unreliable yes. they were. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, yes. Now, when it comes to the testimony of the eyewitness of a, the beloved disciple, I mean, in the Gospel of John, there's a whole lot of dispute about who this figure is. Many scholars still think, it, especially Christian evangelical scholars, think it's likely John, the son of Zebedee himself. Um, ben Witherington, I think, makes a very interesting case that the beloved disciple is Lazarus. Um, what's your opinion on the beloved disciple? Well, um, I think he was a disciple of Jesus who was not one of the twelve, um, but a Jerusalem disciple. Um, in other words, a disciple who stayed home in Jerusalem rather than traveling around with Jesus for most of the time as the twelve did. Um, and I think there are various features of the gospel that that strongly suggest that. Um, now, what I did in the first edition was to argue from the second century evidence about who wrote the Gospel of John. 
Um, because actually we have some pretty early evidence of what people thought about that in the second century. And I argued that, in fact, although uh, modern readers have often taken these uh, references in the second century to be references to John the son of Zebedee, I argue that actually they're not referring to John the son of Zebedee, they're referring to another disciple whose name was John. And again, what we now know about names, very common Jewish name, not at all surprising if there were two disciples of Jesus called John. Mm -hmm. But I argued that he's the man whom actually Papias refers to as, as John the Elder, distinguishing him from the John who was one of the 12 disciples. Um, so in first edition, I talked about that external evidence, as it were. Um, people responded by saying, yes, 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 but that's second century evidence. What about the evidence of the gospel itself? And I didn't do that evidence in the first edition because other people have done it. And I've been convinced by many other scholars arguing that the beloved disciple within the gospel is not portrayed as one of the 12. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a long footnote listing all the people who've argued that, and I didn't do it myself. Uh, in the second edition, I've done a whole chapter on how does the fourth gospel itself present the beloved disciple. And uh, I think I've made a very strong case that the fourth gospel does not present the beloved disciple as one of the 12 disciples, but as another disciple. Um, and this is actually quite important to me because it makes it, for me, much more credible. Mm -hmm. The gospel of John is an eyewitness account right. than if we had to say that the eyewitness were John, the son of Zebedee. Mm -hmm. Now, you're talking about how you didn't make this change for the second edition. I'm curious that... When you were writing the second edition, was there anything in the first edition that you look back on now and say, gosh, that was wrong. I, I really wish I hadn't put that in there. And you changed it for a second edition? No, absolutely no, not. Mm. I mean, I didn't change the text of the first edition at all. The, the, the new edition has three additional chapters, 40,000 words additional to the first edition. But I simply added those three chapters. Now, once you start making little alterations in a text, you know, there's no end to it. So it, it's much better, actually much more convenient for the publishers to leave the text and add three chapters. But as a matter of fact, I haven't changed my mind about anything I said in the first edition. There are probably some points which I might have made a bit clearer. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I said enough about the fact that the Gospels are generically biographies. I could have made much more of that point. And some other things I say in the, in the final chapters that perhaps if I'd thought a bit harder, I might have made more of some points. But um, I really haven't substantially changed my mind. And some of the reviewers seriously misunderstood what I was saying right. in some cases. Um, my argument about names in the Gospels is an instance of that. So, of course, when you read a review and someone's got you wrong, you obviously first think, well, maybe I didn't make it clear enough. So I went back to my text, and in these instances where the reviewers misunderstood me, I don't see how I could have made my point more clearly. Mm. And I could only conclude that these reviewers didn't read the book properly. They skimmed through it, mm -hmm. they read a bit here and a bit there, and they jumped to conclusions as to what I must be arguing without reading the book properly. Mm. Now, it's a long book. It's a long yeah. book. And I often say to people who want to read it, well, you might want to skip a few chapters. I Actually, I always say, if you skip a few chapters, make sure you read the last chapter, because I think that's very important. 
But that's one thing to say to an ordinary reader. It's another thing for a reviewer to report what you're arguing without reading carefully your account of the argument. You know. So that was really disappointing um, when I found that. And I, I point out those things in the new edition. Yeah, I mean, looking at the book, I reached down and got the old edition here, and I got the new one right here. The old edition had 508 pages. The new one has... 615, that's not counting bibliography and things like that. And, you know, yeah. It's not the kind of thing someone's going to sit down and read one evening and say, oh, well, that was a very good read. Absolutely not, no. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as I say, I say to some readers, you know, you may not want to read every chapter and mm-hmm. you can do intelligent skipping. I mean, you know, a lot of us do that with books. You know, we, we can't read the whole of every book that might be interesting um, and we make judicious selections of what we want to read. But I don't think reviewers should do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting here thinking, well, geez, if that was true, I must be the exception, because usually if I get up and start reading any book, aside from things like the preface and such, I would pretty much read the whole book. I mean, uh-huh. very rarely do I have someone on the show I haven't read their book there. One noted mm. exception would be when Craig Keener came on with his Axe commentary. Sorry, I was not reading oh. all the volumes of those. <laughs> that does not surprise me, and I can't claim to have read it all. Yeah. Nor have I read all of Tom Wright's Paul and the Faithfulness of God, mm. which is another mammoth book. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, um, I, I've got that one on my Kindle. I'm still waiting to go through it. <laughs> you, you must tell me when, you, when you've read every single word of it. I, I really wonder how many readers there will be who read every single word of it. Yeah. I think it's too long. Um, and I, I mean, I think there are a lot of books that are too long. Um, and Jesus and the Eyewitness is long, but it's not quite that long. Yeah. But, um, but I, I, I do still say, you know, uh, some people read books selectively, and I, there's nothing wrong with that right. if you realize what you're doing, you know. Yeah. Um, you might say, oh, I'm just not interested in these two chapters about oral tradition. I'll skip that. Um, and the book is laid out so you can do that if you want to. Um, so I, I don't mind people doing that, really. But the the three additional chapters, I you know, if people have read the first edition, they might want to know why they should read the second edition. Yeah. Um, and several things I do in the three additional chapters, one of them is to argue with more evidence for some key points that people were not satisfied I had enough evidence for. So I'm backing up my arguments more strongly with evidence in some cases. I'm answering some of the common criticisms from people who didn't buy my argument. And I'm expanding on some points, such as the authorship of John's Gospel, who the beloved disciple was. Um, so there's there's material in those three chapters that might, as it were, meet questions that people came away from reading the first edition with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know... I think uh, if, any, if anyone was seriously interested in the first edition, and a lot of people were, I mean, beyond my expectation, the number of people who read the book and have told me how much they valued it and it were interested and so on. But uh, if people were really interested by the book, there's quite likely to be some stuff in the second edition that they'll be interested in. Mm-hmm. Do you anticipate there could be a third edition of a book, or is this it? Um, no, I, I, I anticipate a sequel rather than a third edition mm. um, where I'll go into some some issues that I haven't raised at all in, in the first and second editions. So it'll be another book. 
to be, as it were, added on rather than another edition. I don't think I want... Of course, if I go on doing more editions of this one, it will just get longer and longer. And, yeah. As I, as I complain of very long books, too long. Can you give us any hints of what's coming up in, that you didn't cover this time? I, I think I do have to go back to the psychology of memory mm. and clarify some points where that has been misunderstood or where people, where people commonly misunderstand mm. the evidence from cognitive psychology. Um, I have a, a lot of uh, work that I've been doing on the geography of Marx's gospel. Oh. I think the Marx Galilean geography or his geography of the area around the Sea of Galilee, I think it reflects the point of view of a Capernaum fisherman, mm. um, the mental map of a Capernaum fisherman, because mm. as you know, mental maps are different from maps on paper. Um, so that that's another kind of line of discussion that points in the direction of Peter uh, being behind Mark's gospel. Yeah, I, I'm kind of salivating a little bit over here, thinking about this book coming out and such. And I, I think, you know, I'd be glad to host you again on another episode when that one comes out. <laughs> there is, I believe, a video on YouTube which records a lecture I gave about Mark's geography. Mm-hmm. I haven't looked at it. I haven't looked at it because I hate seeing myself doing things like that. But um, some people might want to find that on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Something I've been thinking about with Arvis about how you've done this in-depth study and come out with saying the gospel is containing eyewitness testimony that's reliable. It, it amazes me so many times that the more and more that I've studied and looked at the Gospels historically, despite what a lot of the skeptics and such think, I keep coming back thinking these books are incredibly accurate for mm-hmm. their time and such, and that including being written by people who, more, for the most part, are not really historians as far as we know. Yes, yes. But as I said before, I think in many ways history is like ordinary life, right. you know, And the way you write a book like the Gospel of Mark, relying on eyewitnesses, Mm -hmm. is not unlike the sort of judgments that we make about information we receive all the time in ordinary life. Um, And we don't, we don't, we don't receive information uncritically. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know perfectly well that there are some sources that we need to be dubious about. We know perfectly well that people get things wrong and can't always be relied on. We exercise our critical faculties, but at the same time, most of the time, we rely on uh, information we're given by other people. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, of course, it proves reliable. Otherwise, you know, we couldn't live the lives we do. You know, we are... Testimony from other people is one of the fundamental forms of knowledge that we receive. Alongside what we see with our own eyes or hear with our own ears, um, alongside our own memories, testimony from other people is a basic form of knowledge Mm -hmm. that we constantly rely on. And we rely on it without being uncritical. So the the idea that reliance on testimony is kind of leaving aside our intelligence or something like that is not true. We have... uh, refined critical faculties we've learned in our lifetimes and from other people Mm -hmm. how critical of eyewitness testimony but it's it's a criticism that uh, is as it were secondary to a basic reliance on eyewitness testimony so that we have to have some reason for doubting testimony 
um, we don't systematically doubt everything that everyone tells us. Now, if things change in a world of scholarship and people for the most part did accept the conclusions in this book, which I wish more of them did, how do you think it would shape gospel scholarship if you went through and said, okay, well, it does look like these are eyewitness sources. I mean, where do we go from there? Uh I think we'll have to wait and see Um, because uh, I think think this depends on a younger generation of scholars. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not surprising if someone who's worked all their career with a particular model of how the Gospels came to be is very reluctant to shift to a completely different model. Right. Um, so I think the scholars who can um, assess and find my arguments plausible and work on the basis of them are going to be younger scholars, mm-hmm. uh, younger than me, um, which is a good thing because I don't have that much of my career left probably, but they have careers ahead of them in which to do this work. Um, one thing that I do think needs investigating, actually, is to go back to this question of the forms of the mm-hmm. um, traditions in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, so is it the case that there's, as it were, a standard form in which you tell a miracle story? Um, and if there is, where does it come from? You know, there is a basic story structure that we probably all have hardwired into us so that if we're telling a story, things tend to fall into a certain pattern. Right. Um, So there's something about simply how our mental processes and our processes of remembering and narrating work. But then the other side of it is, is as it were, the cultural forms of stories. And there are probably ways in which all of us, we tell a story, are influenced by the way that sort of story is told in our culture. And that would also be true in the ancient world. But Mm. someone needs to look at this afresh, um, now that we can no longer rely on the way the form critics talked about the forms of the gospel tradition, I think, think this needs to be looked at afresh. All right. So everyone out there in the world who's working with a PhD and such, if you want a dissertation that you think can be very much approved if Dr. Barkham happens to be one of your advisors and such, there, you've just been given what you need to research on. <laughs> I can give you another one, actually. Another thing that needs fresh study is the dates of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Um, Because uh, for the sake of argument, I have, in all the stuff that I've written, accepted the conventional dates, the dates that the majority of scholars accept. Um, Because I don't want my argument about the eyewitnesses to be, as it were, tied to some eccentric idea about the dates of the Gospels. And it, it doesn't it doesn't depend on uh, dating Gospels any earlier than the vast majority of scholars do date them. Um, but I do think that our, our reasons for dating the Gospels are a bit flimsy. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I think looking hard at what sorts of reasons lead to assigning a date to a Gospel or actually other New Testament writings as well is something that could looked at again. It's my understanding that the, the arguments of John A.T. Robinson and his work redating the New Testament have never really been thoroughly addressed the way that they should be. No, I think he overstated his case. Um, it simply isn't plausible that everything in the New Testament was written before 70. And it isn't plausible that 
um, everything written after 70 has to refer to the fall of Jerusalem if it's to be dated after 70. So I think he, 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 his case was overstated and therefore not taken too seriously. But I think the final thing he did show, and I remember clearly thinking this at the end of reading his book, he has shown how, how flimsy the arguments on which we rely for the dating of so many New Testament texts are and we certainly can't be as confident mm-hmm. as people often are because so often people don't, because, you know, a whole line of scholars has dated uh, Matthew's gospel in the late first century because everybody's done it. We just assume that's well-based and you go on doing it. And yeah. you always have to re-examine these things and you often find that well-accepted positions are actually not as well-based as they as we might think they are. Well, we don't have enough time to get into another question such. The book is Jesus and the Eyewitnesses for second edition. It's got three new chapters in it. The hardcover right now is 3568 on Amazon. The Kindle version is 2949. No paperback yet listed here. Now, um, Dr. Bauckham, do you have a blog, a website, an email, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yes, I have a website, which is richardbalkham.co.uk, uh-huh. um, and uh, there's a facility for sending a message through to me. Okay. It also has a, it also, it, in, in some ways I haven't been too good at keeping it, keeping it up to date, but I do keep my list of publications up to date. So uh-huh. if you want to know what I've published recently, they can find it there. Mm-hmm. And do you have any final message you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Oh, please read the second edition. <laughs> I, I second that one, and I definitely look forward to the, re- the work you have coming out on geography and Mark and things of that sort. I'd like to thank you definitely for coming on again. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Again, I really hope we will see you back here again sometime. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. I'd like to remind everyone that uh, next week, Jeff Myers is coming here. We're going to talk about his book, The Secret Battle of Ideas About God. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>